Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. So, Steve, last week uh, we were we were t- continuing our conversation about evil and uh, the, the problems of evil that we find in our world. And we kind of talked about how um, Christians throughout the centuries have um, confronted evil, such as things like the slavery and, sure. and the Holocaust. And so today we want to c- continue kind of on that same realm, but we're going to go back to Scripture and look at some voices and some folks throughout the history of, of the scriptures that have confronted evil. So where do we want to kick that conversation off with today? Well, um, one, one place I, th- I think would be a helpful uh, jumping off point um, is a place uh, in the scriptures that uplifts how ambiguous or challenging it can be sometimes in daily life mm-hmm. to know where are we called to speak up, how do we name where there's evil, how do we know when to just know this is just the toughness of life, that kind of thing. And I, I, I think this is an important learning for us because we've talked before about how sometimes in the Bible, the stories where evil shows up, it is like overt, you know, like talking demons and mm-hmm. you know, the tempter figure in the wilderness. And, uh, okay, so we've got some guidance for if the devil shows up carrying a pitchfork and says, you know, bow down to me. Okay, clear no. I mean, you know, uh, and we've said before, when evil is very evil, it makes it a little bit easier for us to say, oh, that's obvious. Let's say yeah. no to that. Um, and we might assume that that's all the Bible offers us is when it's a talking snake in the garden saying eat this fruit oh I should not listen to talking snakes uh, talking donkeys it turns out are okay talking <laughs> snakes um, but um, there are places and, and one book in particular one whole book of the Bible is really all about how you discern where God's at work in the world and even how to say no to the presence of evil in the world when it doesn't wear a name tag um, and it's one of those uh Maybe lesser known, but shouldn't be lesser known books of the Bible. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure you can read my mind. Where are we, where are we headed? <laughs> We're heading to the book of Esther, aren't we? Hooray! The book of Esther, which is also, for people who are keeping score of lesser known <laughs> Jewish festivals, is the origin of the story of the uh, festival of Purim. Um, but we'll get there later. Um, so anyway, uh, ground us a little bit. Give us backstory in, in the story of the book of Esther. So Esther is a Jewish girl who... Um, who is being raised by her uncle Mordecai, and it's under... Remind me of the king again. This is during the reign of Xerxes, as the story tells it, and it's during, like, the Persian occupation. So to put this in Israel's history, Israel, uh, under one king for a while, splits, they go into exile. The southern kingdom eventually comes back when the Babylonians are conquered by the Medes and the Persians, and at some point after... um, after that, uh, that that time of occupation, they're now ruled by basically the, uh, some sort of Persian empire, and Xerxes is the one who's named as king at the time. See, Steve's our historian, so I always go to him for that kind of information. Um, so Xerxes is the king, and Xerxes and his wife get into an argument. He kicks his wife out. So now he's looking for a new wife. Yeah. And so he brings in all these young ladies um, from the kingdom into his palace looking for a young wife. He doesn't realize that Esther is Jewish. Mm-hmm. In fact, her, her, uh, her uncle Mordecai says, you know, don't let them know that you're Jewish. Just, you're a pretty young girl. Just do what they tell you to do. Mm-hmm. And eventually, Esther becomes our heroine and becomes the queen mm-hmm. to this new king. And um, through the story, we find out that one of um, Xerxes' men wants to eventually... He wants to... Uh, come up with a plot to kill all the Jews. Yeah, and it starts, it, I think, with uh, like a, a personal grudge against Esther's, Esther's uncle Mordecai, and then it's mm-hmm. sort of, well, and that's just, I don't just hate him, I hate all of their kind. And it becomes this 
villainous, uh, almost like almost like um, like black hat and mustache twirling villainous sort of yes. like like Haman is this absolutely utterly villainous character mm-hmm. on like on par with Pharaoh in Exodus, um, and, and he's got this sort of like he's well he's no question he's the villain in the story and creates a plot to wipe out all all of not only Esther and Mordecai's family but the whole Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And so Esther finds out about this plot and. She, she converses with her uncle Mordecai because, you know, that's her, her go-to person. She's like, okay, what, what can I do? I'm, yes, I'm the queen, but a queen is a very lowly position. This is not like the queen of England that we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, and, and this is like the, the power dynamics in this story in the whole book. It's not at any point like King Xerxes thinks, oh, I find a, a wonderful life partner, I'll grant her equal say in the kingdom. This is, she's the prettiest girl at the pageant, and she's my property, I'll make her queen, and along with however many concubines. And I mean, like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is not an enlightened story as far as Xerxes is, is portrayed. But, yeah, Esther's question is, from whatever vantage point, whatever platform or privilege I have, mm-hmm. what do I do with that when I'm well aware that my whole people are in trouble? So she comes up with this idea to go to the king. Mm-hmm. But if she goes to the king without his invitation, she's going to get killed. And that's sort of what's, what starts the whole story off with, you'd mentioned with uh, the king's first other unfortunate wife, Vashti, there's this sort of whole question of uh, her sort of treating herself like she's of equal dignity and worth, mm-hmm. and the king doesn't like that business. So she gets, the, the, the earlier uh, queen, Vashti, ends up in big trouble and booted out because she's too mouthy. She's too, you know, she thinks she's a human being. <laughs> um, and so Esther knows. I mean, it's, it's not like she's projecting fears onto Xerxes. As, He's been a jerk to previous queens. Queen. And uh, when they did so much as speak up out of what uh, what was expected as when their turn was. Mm-hmm. So Esther goes to her uncle and she asks her uncle to ask all the Jews in, in, in the area that's occupied by the Persians to fast for three days and three nights. Mm-hmm. To fast and to pray for God's favor for her as she goes up in front of the king. And so the Jews, they fast and they pray and Esther goes in without an invitation to the king and says, hey, your guy here, Haman, he he has this plot, and he's going to kill all the Jewish people, and they're my family. <laughs> yeah, and and so it's this moment of her being vulnerable, owning her own heritage, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the risk of if if this doesn't succeed, and the king isn't pleased with her audience there, she's in trouble, and the the king oh, might endorse Haman's plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This. And it, there's this moment where it, it almost feels like like a Shakespearean twist. I mean, the story has a real beauty to the the, the mm-hmm. drama of it uh, as well, where there's uh, this this whole back and forth with the king of um, king. How would you honor somebody you know who had done really good for the kingdom, and how would you punish somebody who tried to get that? And, and this is really all sort of Esther lobbing out. Shouldn't you be honoring my uncle Mordecai, and shouldn't you be punishing Haman who's trying to kill uh, all these people? And Xerxes doesn't realize what's going on. Um, and Haman doesn't realize all this going on as, as well. He ends up, uh, the, the story ends, it, it's a weird kind of a happy ending, but he ends up getting uh, uh, hung on the gallows he had built for Mordecai. Uh, so again, it's, it's got sort of that Shakespearean revenge sort of a, by Act 5, evil gets vanquished and the, the good guys are saved, or the, the people, uh, Esther's people, the Jewish people are saved. Um, 
But the weird thing, and the end of all this story with the drama and the twists and the turns, and really, for, for considering how old a story this is, how, how prominent and how central Esther as a character is, that she isn't just stock figure, she isn't famous because she's someone else's mother, she's important in her own right, but the story is also important and challenging because of who and what aren't explicitly mentioned, Right. Right. You don't find... This is the one book in all of scripture where God is not explicitly named. Yeah. And for all the evil that goes on in this book, Satan, the devil, whatever name you want to use for him, is not in this book either. Right. Or at least there's there's no fingerprints. <laughs> there's no bookmarks no no yeah. or pitchforks. It's, it's a story that in that regard is so grounded in most of how our regular day-to-day life is lived where there aren't booming voices from mm-hmm. heaven or literal angels and demons sitting on our shoulder. And we've, we've joked before about how that's the way the cartoons picture things. And at some point, maybe we've assumed, well, if God shows up in my life, it will be in that sort of audible way. It will be an angel or a, you know, a shaft of light and a voice. And if evil shows up, I'll smell sulfur and there will be you know, a mm-hmm. knock at the door or a talking snake. And here's a story that's really all about the presence of God to save people uh, and to continue the line of the story, you know, the, the, the promise of the messianic arrival has, it hasn't arrived yet. Um, but um, that, I mean, that's an important piece that sometimes both God's presence and evil's presence um, are so subtle they operate below the radar. Yeah. But clearly, I mean, this, this book has been part of not only our Christian tradition history, but also of Jewish history. And there's a festival based off it. So it's clear that even though God's not mentioned in here, that he is the main actor in the story. You know, he is the one that has put all this together. And so it is important for us to realize that, yeah, sometimes we're not always going to directly hear from God. Yeah. You know, and we're not always going to directly be able to tell that Satan's trying to speak to us either. Right. But here, clearly, we see both of those things happening. And thankfully, Esther was the right person for the right time who recognized the evil that was going on in the system. Yeah. And was able to hear from God's voice, yeah, and save her people. I think. I think the the whole story of Esther. And again, if, if you want to, as, as folks are listening, you know, want to get yourself caught up, hit the pause button and go read the book of Esther. It's short, um, and and come back and join us. But um, this is really a resource in the Bible itself for discernment of how you recognize what you're called to do in a situation, how we navigate in. Uh, a world where often God's presence is subtle and evil's presence is super subtle and stealthy, um, and how we also gain the skills to name evil where it is and also to name our calling to speak to it, um, even when it's scary and even when it means risking whatever modest amount of privilege we, we have or are forced to admit we have. And even risking one's life to, to stand up for something. Because, right. you know, it, in times in our own recent history, people have risked their lives to stand up for what is good and what is right. Sure. I think of, you know, the Dietrich Bonhoeffers of, of the Holocaust period. Sure. Who, yes, was captured because he was a Catholic priest. But, you know, he stood up and he wrote letters and he, he spoke about the evil that was the Third Reich. Yeah, yeah. And eventually it cost him his life. Yeah. Now... Brief side note, I'm, I'm going to own one of my own. Bonhoeffer's a Lutheran as you get. <laughs> oh, sorry. But, yeah. but that's cool. But yeah, He's a priest. <laughs> in, right. in any case, there are so many... We, Lutherans have... So, they're sometimes like Lutheran heroes are few and far between. So well, we hold on to the ones we got. Um, but anyway... How could I forget that he was a <laughs> you're, But, but your, your point is so well taken that throughout 
Christian history as well. There have been folks inspired often by mm-hmm. not only Esther, it's not like she's the only one in the Bible, but she's maybe a good case study. Um, but folks who have in their own day or time realized that um, they need to speak up and it wasn't a matter of personally wanting to uh, offend or upset or taking a grudge out against this or that person, but this is about uh, what evil operates through systems mm-hmm. that become bigger than just one person. I mean, like, like even though I, I said in the story of the book of Esther, Haman emerges as sort of the villain, there's also a whole system that are, that emerges around the Persian Empire in that um, the, the, the whole system that sets up Esther's not allowed to talk to the king unless invited, mm-hmm. and that uh, Haman's allowed to do all this stuff behind the scenes, so that all these other characters in the story just say things like, "Well, I was just doing or I was just doing what I was ordered. The law says I have to do, and if if Haman gets the law passed that he wants mm-hmm. passed, that will uh, force the the extermination of all of Esther's people, the the, the whole Jewish people, um, then it's a matter of well, the the law now is complicit. The whole mm-hmm. the whole system is a part of it, and." Um, Again, that, that, that's an important piece to, to recognize that's a part of the story. This isn't just one person and their pet grudge against another person. Well, and that was the, the same with the Nazis. And most their defense in the trials, the Gutenberg trials afterwards, and just... Uh, I probably got that wrong too, but that's okay. Uh, the Nuremberg trials. Right. That, <laughs> see, I, Everything I, in German ends with a Berg anyway. Yeah, I know. I'm from a Berg. It's fine. <laughs> um, but in the Nuremberg trials, that was most of the Nazis' defense. I was just doing what the law told me to do. Right, right. You know? Yeah, my orders just came straight down, and so I just followed the orders that came from above me. Right, and how often it becomes sort of a once you're convinced, well, that the rules say so, the rules must be right, Mm -hmm. and therefore all sorts of evil things get passed on as acceptable because, in the name of, well, it's what the rules say. It's what that I'm gonna I'm gonna forget the 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 famous recent author who coined the phrase the banality of evil, but the idea that often evil doesn't come in this sort of like you know black cloak like uh, Count Dracula, but it it looks so mundane and ordinary and, and, and banal that, that people end up doing horrible, terrible things and thinking, well, it was okay because I was told to and the person above me, you know, if, if it was it was wrong, they wouldn't have told me to. Uh, it, 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 there are echoes in that in that line of thinking. Uh, I think I, I hear it um, in the, the Passion Story of Jesus where the, the uh, religious leaders come to Pilate and Pilate says, what has this guy done wrong? And the religious leaders go, well, if we weren't a criminal, we would have handed him over to you. It's sort of this sort of circular, well, it has to be good because the law says so and Jesus must be a criminal because he, we handed him over to you as a criminal. Well, wait a second there. And, and again, Esther's story is really helpful as, as a, maybe a resource book even for, okay, in our own lives, how do we gain the, the spiritual perception? How do, we, how do we sharpen our eyes to be able to recognize what needs to be spoken up about? And what are times where, oh, it, I just couldn't find a parking space? Oh, that's not anybody persecuting me. That's, I couldn't find a parking space. And yeah. What are the things that are, this is a place where the system itself is wrong, and what are the places where, nope, there's no better way to deal with this? Mm-hmm. You know, When I um, get frustrated in line at the post office, it's not a systemic evil. The world is not trying to persecute me because I'm trying to mail something at other people who are in front of me. I shouldn't have picked lunchtime. It's the time to go to the post office. That's not persecution. Um, And that's a difficult place. I mean, what are some things that emerge as as you think about the story of of Esther that are maybe helpful takeaways for any of us who aren't Jewish princesses but are, in fact, uh, people trying to listen for God's voice? Well, just, I think, and I preached on this a few weeks ago at my church, the the idea that she took time to pray and to fast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fasting is something that in our culture we don't like to talk about because we like our food. Right. Um, And both of us as as preachers, both of our churches are known for their their potlucks and things. And so, Uh um, but 
taking the time to actually listen for God's voice. Because, you know, a lot of times we, 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 we complain about things and we wonder about things and we spend so much time complaining, we don't actually take the time to pray about them. Yeah. And then to sit and listen and wait for God to respond to yeah, us. Yeah. And I think this is maybe a brief time without moment to talk about what, what do we think fasting is accomplishing in a moment like that? Because the temptation, I think, is one, we might just want to mentally bracket out the whole fasting part. Well, I'm not supposed to do that. I, don't, I want my tacos. Um, and instead, they go, okay, fasting is somehow an important piece of the practice. And yet it's not presented anywhere in the scripture like God demands a certain amount of suffering or discomfort in order to answer our prayers. Oh, no. It's not no. that God's saying, well, they only said they wanted my help. No, but they didn't, they didn't go hungry long enough. But there's this sense of, Fasting in the, in the, in the practice of, of ceasing from eating food for a time as a way of sort of focusing so that every time you feel that hunger pang, there's sort of a, you know what, there's a bigger thing to be worried about in this moment. And instead of immediately gratifying my own desires and reaching for a Twinkie, wait a second, there's something bigger and it's worth delaying the gratification there. It's, it's to some degree a way of reminding ourselves what things are serious enough that we're willing to suffer for, uh, as well as to say to God, this is an important thing, we want to be focused and clear on it, and that we can't just make that temporary discomfort go away by grabbing a snack because we're committed to the fast, and also to say there are other ills or troubles that we can't just wish away or grab a, grab mm-hmm. a Twinkie and numb ourselves into contentment again. So that, that, that practice of fasting is one of those that uh, we can get wrong by thinking we're impressing God, mm-hmm. or that God, like uh, Shakespeare Shylock, demands a pound of flesh or something. Something like that. It's simply a matter of uh, this, this sort of spiritual discipline of it. Yeah, and it's not a hunger strike either. Where you know, right. if we if we just fast long enough, God eventually will have to give in to our demands because you know we're going to starve to death. Right, right. That's, the, that's not that's a genie in a bottle. Right, right. And and even that that that's such a great great help because yeah, we can end up treating it like the God's the adversary, and we're trying to get God's attention with hunger. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are times Gandhi's hunger strike accomplished what it was meant to do, but it was aimed at the British and getting their attention rather than God. Yes. <laughs> um, and in a similar way, uh, our practice of fasting isn't trying to impress God or hey God did you notice me yet but it's more a way uh, for, our, for our own selves about being focused on what matters and taking things okay. seriously too that we're not sort of glib and like uh, God I'd like to order a pony and I'd like world peace and sort of like as though this is easy stuff and it's just sort of a matter of wishing it and saying it out loud and then just you know God makes it happen mm-hmm. but if we're invested in that, that, that focus and every time you feel that hunger pang or every time you think oh I could go grab a snack no I'm going to say no to that that sort of turns us back toward this is what we're focused on in this mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And anytime I personally when I when I fast or when I'm teaching about fasting, I always remind folks when that when those hunger pangs come or perhaps you can't fast from food so it's something else, that, mm-hmm. that time that you would have spent, you know, eating that meal or or spending the hour on Facebook or whatever it was, you know, is a time to to reflect and to pray and to read scripture to to connect with God on a deeper level and be reminded, as Jesus tells us, we don't live on bread alone, yeah, yeah. but on the very word that comes from God. And so, yes, it's a reminder of those things that are that are bigger than us and, and deeper than us and the, those concerns that we have, but also just a way to, to connect with God and say, okay, God, I can't necessarily do anything about this by myself. Yeah, yeah. But you might be calling me to do something about it. So I'm going to take some time. I'm going to listen for you yeah. and put aside everything else and focus on what you want me to do about the situation. I almost feel like, and this is forgive me, this is going to be one of those half-formed thoughts. So correct me if it feels like I'm going way off the rails here. But, but it occurs to me that maybe part of the practice of fasting, at least the way Esther uses it too, is that there's something good sometimes about 
a holy dissatisfaction. I mean, mm-hmm. like the way so often empire after empire would mollify people's uh, complaints was, I mean, their old Roman line is bread and circuses. You know, keep the people entertained, and you know, uh, or, or Marie Antoinette will let them eat cake. That's sort of like you know, if we put food in their bellies, they'll think everything's fine. They'll let it do whatever we want. And sometimes, at least, it seems like there's this. No, maybe it's okay for me to live with the discomfort mm-hmm. because if that, if if I can, if I am forced to deal with the discomfort of it. Um, I, I realize there are other people suffering that can't just wish away or grab a snack, you know, to make their their troubles go away either. And sometimes, sometimes discomfort is the right emotion or right response to things. Mm-hmm. There, there's this quote I've heard attributed to Saint Augustine of Hippo, but it doesn't sound like Augustine to me. It's one of those lines that man, it'd be really cool if he said this, but it sounds about like 1,400 years too late for him to have said it. <laughs> but the, the quote I've heard attributed to him goes something like this. Um, Hope has two beautiful daughters, courage and anger. Uh, anger to be upset at the way things are and the courage to change, uh, to, to do something about them. I mean, that sounds a little too 20th century to me to be St. Augustine, but that notion that uh, hope sometimes leads to anger and that anger then is channeled in right directions. So that if, if we see horrible things happening around us and we aren't upset by them, that's not a good sign. That's a sign we're numb. That's a yes. sign we, 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 we're, we're apathetic or close to dead. Um, and uh, that sometimes the right response, Esther's response, is once you sort of shake it up to realize this is bad news and not just for her but all the people who mm-hmm. she loves, that she needs to be stirred up to some kind of a- action, some kind of voice. So, okay, so part of, part of what the resources in the book of Esther uh, are is that practice of, of prayer and fasting. That's a piece of when we find ourselves wondering, is there something I should be doing in the world or the things I should be seeing, that, that's a piece mm-hmm. of it. Um, Another that I would call attention to maybe, Erica, is um, the role that uh, Mordecai plays in Esther's life as another sounding board. That mm-hmm. She doesn't do this alone. It's not just Queen Esther goes off on personal retreat and by herself uh, says, oh, I discovered that. But like other people are a part of the conversation because every one of us has blind spots, yeah. things that we can't see on our own or things that have to be pointed out to us. And once mm-hmm. we see them, uh, unless, unless our, our hearts are impenetrably hard, we can often go, oh, I never thought of it that way, or oh, I never saw how this affected so-and-so, or I never realized, and then we can be spurred to action. So that, that there's that interplay, right? Oh, absolutely. It, it, um, accountability for me is something that's huge in my own personal Christian walk, and, and I try to talk with it about my people as much as possible, because like you said, we do have those blind spots. We do have those areas where you know we're, we get so focused on one thing or one idea that um, we we lose the peripheral, mm-hmm. you know, of mm-hmm. what's going on around that one idea, and so maybe we have this idea, you know, we need to do this to take care of um, or to uh, come against whatever evil there is, yeah. and then but having that sounding board might say, well, you know what, if you do this, then something else might, you know, yes, that's a great idea, but it might lead you in the wrong direction yeah. down the road, yeah. yeah. And so having that other person, you know, to, to kind of just talk things out with and say, okay, here's my thought, here's my idea, what do you think? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And making sure that that's somebody who um, is older and wiser in the faith than you mm-hmm. is really important. Not necessarily older in age, yeah. but older in the faith. Um, so then they can come with their experiences and with their knowledge and say, mm-hmm. you know what? I love the idea. Let's maybe tweak it a little bit this way or that way. Or, you know, I love the idea. Let's go with it. And let me join you in that walk, too. Yeah, yeah. And that that whole notion is in some ways kind of foreign to the culture we live in that Mm -hmm. tends to be like a... 
just because you have an opinion, it must automatically be right. Don't look for guidance anywhere else. And instead, like, the, the story of the people of God at their best, at their wisest in the Old and New Testaments is this sort of regular, let me listen to other voices around me because surely I'm not the first one to ever wrestle with this or surely I'm not the first person on the block, but okay, uh, how do other people see this? Um, and, and that ability, that humility to, to mm-hmm. listen to one another and when you bounce something off of somebody, if they go, yeah, I never thought of it. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, we should do something. Or if they go, nah, I don't think that's it. Or maybe maybe someone else hears things in a totally different way and helps you to have a new perspective. But, but mm-hmm. that sounding board piece is important. Um, and sometimes that, that sounding board relationship with what happens for Esther is finally uh, Mordecai has to put that challenge to Esther in that I mean, like if, if people know one line from Esther's book it's the one line um, who knows but that you've been brought to such uh, an occasion for such a time as this right mm-hmm. that, and, and the rest of that line is you know if you don't speak up uh, someone else will be raised up. It's what's sometimes called the divine passive. It doesn't say God will be the raising, but the assumption is, you know, God's going to do it and will raise somebody. But someone else, help will arise from another quarter, Mordecai says. Wink, wink, God will do it. Uh, if, if you refuse to speak, God will find another way, implicitly is what's being said. Um, and you'll end up losing your life in all this, Esther. But what if this is the moment for you to speak? Um, and that's important, because sometimes the people around us um, are not just there to pat us on the back and nod their head and say, yes, I like your idea, but sometimes they have to kick us in the pants. I mean, sometimes <laughs> they have to be, yeah, I'm glad you finally dawned on you. Now you got to do something. Uh-huh. Um, are there other things as you, as you consider this story that you feel are helpful takeaways uh, for us reading this story now, you know, 2,400 years after that, that time period? I'm trying to... Can I ask your opinion on something while you're... Yeah. Okay. Um, I found that. The, the, did you think of one? No. Okay. The, 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 the quick thing I'm wondering is, it also takes not only Esther to have eyes on the situation of her people. I mean, mm-hmm. that's sort of an awakening yeah. for her of, oh, yeah, this is something serious for them. But it also requires her to be able to see she's in a position that maybe others are not, that she has a yeah. platform that others mm-hmm. don't. Um, what 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 do you think? What does that look like for us in 21st century? Uh, I'm getting, I guess, America for most of our listeners. Uh, at least you and me. What, what what does it look like? How, how do we how do we cultivate that same practice of looking where are, where do we have a platform of privilege that maybe others do not have, and how do we do how do we deal with that? <laughs> oh, Steve, how political do you want me to get about this? <laughs> Um, for those of you that don't know us, one of the privileges that both Steve and I have is the color of our skin. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so we live in a, in a culture that um, at no point uh, in, in our history ever in, enslaved people from Northern Europe. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and so there are there is the reality that other people that we know or may hold very dear and love um, are treated differently uh, because of the color of their mm-hmm. skin uh, or the... Uh, the texture of their hair or the uh, way they speak or I mean there, there's a whole bunch of ways that we sometimes uh, in recognizing that you and I at least in that regard because of our ancestry that was handed to us as this is who you are we didn't choose that or make it happen nope. or push a button on a vending machine those are things that are handed to us and sometimes it's uncomfortable to recognize mm-hmm. that that in some circumstances gives us a leg up or, or privilege that others don't automatically have and it's uncomfortable to be forced to say, huh, there have probably been doors open to me that were not open to other mm-hmm. people. 
Um, and it doesn't mean we have to necessarily feel guilty like you know, we weren't trying to, but when things are handed to you, what do you, what do, you do with that? Um, another area of privilege that we have and um, is, I think, as pastors. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, as clergy, we have a, a privilege and a, and a door into people's lives that other people don't necessarily have. And while that door for us looks you know, one way it might look different for other people. So sure. depending on what your job and your vocation is, sure. you know, might give you privilege and leverage sure. just like Esther, while she's not, you know, queen in the sense of like Queen Elizabeth over in England is mm-hmm. now, she still has more power than most of the people yeah. that are under yeah. her. There's 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 at the very least uh, a certain clout or a certain social respectability mm-hmm. that goes for Esther and, and again we should own as pastors, there is a certain Deference, a lot of people often will, oh, well, you're a pastor. I mean, because people then assume well, that means a certain amount of schooling and education and social refinement, and we're not supposed to cuss around you. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's often that reality. I, I don't know if this is something you often face, but I will often find a conversation with somebody, and they'll say some <clears throat> word that makes them blush, and they'll stop, and they'll go, oh, I'm sorry, preacher. Um, and they're sort of a, like... Well, that's because you were a caller. <laughs> <laughs> some, sometimes, sometimes in a flannel shirt and jeans, but just people know, and they're like... and, and I. That's not at the top of my list of worst sins in the world. Yeah. No. Uh, and yet, um, there are these assumptions that mm-hmm. get placed. And it, again, it's not that preachers are the only ones, but there are plenty of uh, assumptions people make about, oh, we have that kind of job, and there's a certain respect or deference giving uh, mm-hmm. that others may not have, um, and assumptions that get made. Uh, so yeah, so you and I have opportunity in that regard. Uh, and here, I'll, I'll own a, a flip side one. Uh, there are absolutely places where men are treated differently than women. I'm certain in ministry there are places where it feels like there are double standards or places where men are allowed to do things that women aren't allowed to do. And for that mm-hmm. matter, there are there are absolutely certainly still circles where folks naming the name of Jesus are still fighting the fight over whether women are allowed to be leaders in the life of the church. Uh, despite what I would argue, maybe we can have a whole series one day on women's leadership throughout the Bible, including yes. Junia the Apostle. Um, but okay, bracketing out all those details mm-hmm. from women. So there's another place where I have to own a certain amount of, wow, there are ways that I'm treated differently than uh, mm-hmm. women are, women in ministry, women in all sorts of ways. And there are things I don't, automatically have to be afraid of that uh, women are like taught at some point, yep, you need to be afraid of this or this or that, or you need to be cautious that in ways that I, I wasn't trained to be. Yeah. Uh, and that changes my perspective on the world so that it becomes easier when you're in a position of privilege to say, like Mar- Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. Oh, everyone must have access to all the things mm-hmm. that I have, and maybe everybody doesn't. So, I mean, that, that's an important piece of this story as well, right? Yeah, and I don't know the double standard is as much out in the secular world, but definitely in the religious world. There are so many things I could give you a whole episode of just listing things that you, Steve, have advantages over me yeah. as a clergy person. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that that's an area of privilege, and, I, and I'm grateful for, for colleagues like yourself and, and many of the other men that I know um, who have supported and who have fought for women's rights to be able to preach and, mm-hmm, and to mm-hmm. do things because we wouldn't be where we are in my denomination or yours yeah. if it weren't for men fighting for our right to be there. And at the same time, the the perspective I, for, for, from my vantage point is that um, the whole church, men and women, have benefited from 
women who were confident that they were hearing the call of the Spirit. I mean, mm-hmm. like, it, it's really easy in moments like this for the people who are the privileged ones, and so men in this case, you know, Y chromosome people, it becomes really, really tempting to be like, oh, well, we were just gracious enough to give you a seat at the table. Like, this is all, you know, sort of a charity thing. And that, I mean, like, that, that's worse. That, I mean, that, that, that's, that's patronizing and, and infantilizing and all, you know, all sorts of... You can of, only see my faces right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, and, and instead, like, no, it's not, it's not that, uh, you know, the privileged class did some nice charity work to let other people in, but wait a second. Um, oh, wait, women are called to do this right. too. And that my faith has been enriched by the the ministry, the voices of uh, women's voices, like yours, like of, and for that matter, throughout the stretch of Christian history, and including Esther's story, the whole biblical story, uh, and often we've either chosen not to hear them or to uh, say, well, but you can find a man who says the same thing in another Bible verse, and, and not yeah. controversial then. Uh, but I mean, this is, this is an important piece for. Every one of us, and again, the goal here for Eric and me is not that everybody listening or that we all go home feeling bad about ourselves or start beating ourselves up, so much as it's worth owning where the place that doors mm-hmm. have been opened for us, that they are not open for others, and that sometimes it's more than just a door. In Esther's case, it's a matter of uh, realizing she has access to the voice of power that could save people's lives or not. Um, and if she doesn't, I mean, for, for a good bit of the story, she wants to deny that she has that privilege. She says, well, I don't have any position of honor with the king. I'm, I'm not, you know, a, a man in that trusted position of, of authority mm-hmm. like he is. And Mordecai has to say, okay, fine, you're, you're, he, does, he doesn't treat you like part of his cabinet, but you have some privilege and you have to use what you have for the sake of other people's mm-hmm. lives. And honestly, you know, we, you said, Steve, about the just the wallowing and feeling guilty for the mm-hmm. privilege that we have. Honestly, that's that's worse than you know. I, that's almost worse than re- not recognizing it at all. Yeah, yeah. I think because then you're just you know, oh, woe is me, and I have this. No, use that privilege. Right. You know, Mordecai had to kind of shove Esther into doing, had to kick her in the pants and say, mm-hmm. hey, no, you need to use this privilege that you have to save your people. Yeah, and that's what. Um, we need we need to do now in the yeah. 21st century. We need to use whatever privilege we've been given, no matter what that looks like, yeah. and to use it to help people who don't have that privilege. Yeah, and so both both halves are important. That we're we're in the position where we need to listen to somebody else who says, "You realize you have, you have a a perch or a platform to speak from. You have a privilege mm-hmm. that others don't. We have to have the humility to be able to listen to them." And there's sometimes when our voice, we have to be the Mordecai people who go like, you realize so and so, you have this opportunity mm-hmm. to speak uh, and to be those voices who say to others, who knows but for such a time of this that you've been raised up to this position and to, to this moment. Um, so maybe uh, a, a summary thought for us is for every one of us, whatever your chromosomes are, uh, to be both like Mordecai and to be like Esther. And that when you find yourself uh, living through the, the, the world in which we live, the day's headlines that we live mm-hmm. through, and find ourselves wondering how do we even deal or process through any of it, oddly enough, a 2,400-year-old book uh, provides <laughs> a lot of resources because it deals with how do we engage a world where God and the devil don't always wear name tags saying, here I am, and yet to be convinced God's active in the world and that evil is very real in the world and mm-hmm. sometimes our calling is to speak about it uh, and to be able to listen when other voices prompt us to. Absolutely. Alright, well thanks for bearing with our, our uh, back and forth and all of our <laughs> uh, weird uh, detours and places we went along the way today. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll hope to join you next time. Catch you next week.